Uh, good morning, City Light. My name is Mo. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, you know what? The book that we open up every single week, when, when we look at it, it is a beautiful, unique, and extremely complex and complicated and supernatural book, right? Uh, it's, it's truly a magnificent creation of God that he would bring us his word. And, and what our hope is every single week as we open this text is that it would, it would not just be a book that we read or we open up on black and white pages, but that it would be a book that displays our God. That would display his beauty and every single verse, every single word in it, my hope is, would display the magnificence of our king. And that wouldn't be any different with this short, very complicated book about the rebellious prophet Jonah, right? Like as we look at this and as we looked at it last week, what we saw is that the beginning of the story starts with Jonah, with God calling out to Jonah saying, go, and then Jonah responding and saying no in his rebellion. And so um, God called Jonah to go and preach the, the preach basically the, to a group of people that he didn't deem worthy of God's grace. And so this week, that's where we're going to pick it up. We're actually going to pick it right back up in verse four in chapter one. And so if you have your Bible, please open it up to chapter one. Um, we'll be in that text for the remainder of our time. Um, so when we look at the book of Jonah, one of the words that I would use to sum this book up is sovereignty. God's sovereignty. He's the one in control. And when I say that, I think that to be good news for us. It's good news that God, God is the one in control because we know that he's merciful, he's kind, he's gracious, he's loving, he's all-knowing, he's patient. And we could go on and on and on and on about what God is, who he is, his character, his attributes. But it's good news that we know that he's the one in control because we know that no matter what is going on, no matter where we're going, no matter what has happened to us, we know that it will work out for our good and his glory. Now, many times when we hear of horrible things happening to people, we, we, we know that to be true. But we start to ask these questions of why did that happen to them? Why do bad things happen to good people? What did they do to deserve that thing? We even ask the question when we're going through those hard situations, right? Like, what did I do to deserve this, God? Why did you cause this to happen to me? Or, or we try to blame someone else for creating the injustice in our life or simply assuming that God is punishing us for something that we've done. And so when we hear that God sends a storm, like in verse 4, meaning God Simply put, cause something difficult in, in someone's life, it doesn't settle well in our souls, right? In fact, we may even uh, start to think some, get angry about that reality that God may send a storm or a difficult thing into someone's life. And so as we walk through our story together, we will see that God sends a storm into Jonah's life often like he sends storms into ours. However, However, as God's plan unfolds with this storm, what we will see is that God's storm wasn't intended for Jonah's end, but it was actually to help course correct him, to correct his course. We will find that God doesn't uh, waste anything, including the hard times, even the difficult storms in our life. In fact, he continues to make those things for our good. And so let's pick it up in verse 4 as, as we look at our text. But the Lord, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it up for them. But, the, but then Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. 
And so the first reason for storms I want to point out to us is God sends storms to meet us uh, in our rebellion. God sends storms to meet us in our rebellion. So after Jonah escapes, he finds a ship and starts to head out on a journey away from the presence of God, right? So God called him. He said no. And to me, if, if, if I'm God, that's the end of the story, right? I'm going to move on to the next dude because this dude's not faithful. See you later, buddy, right? Like, Thankfully, God's not that way. Uh, he doesn't work that way. Something's wrong with your pastor. doesn't have a lot of grace, but God does. And so he, he doesn't just forget about Jonah. In fact, he's always pursuing him in the midst of the story like he's always pursuing us and meeting us where we are. And so, so it doesn't say how long or how far out Jonah had gone, but it does presume that he, he was a ways out at this point. And so God did allow him to go in his rebellion, but just not forever. Uh, God rocked that boat. He started to to break that boat apart. And I don't know if you know anything about mariners because I don't, but I did some reading. uh, And what I found out is that mariners have a lot of storms in their careers. Like actually storms are just kind of a common theme for them within their job description. And these guys, these mariners were panicked. They're not usually panicked over storms. You see, the, 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 the Mediterranean Sea is probably one of the most dangerous seas that you could ever be on when it comes to being a sailor or a mariner. It's not Holmes Lake, okay? Like, that's not what you're envisioning right now. It's not a sailboat on Holmes Lake. This is a dangerous thing. And so these guys, this had to be a pretty terrible storm for them to freak out the way they are, for them to, to see this as an abnormal theme outside of their job or their typical job. And in response to this storm, what do these men do? Well, they prayed to their every god they can think of, basically, right? A storm reveals what a person truly believes in and places their faith in, what they truly trust in. And, and so God can use a storm to expose what's going on deep down in the human heart. That, that's what he's doing for these men. He's exposing their idols. And simply put, an idol is described as something that you put your trust or your faith in, in the, in the hard times and in the good times in place of God. Something that would be considered superior to God in your life. Or it even could be something that you use to basically as a go to drug or medication for difficult things. It's where you place your comfort, your security, and your trust in ultimately. That's what an idol is. And so what God did for these men, well, he exposed their idols. He exposed what they found their comfort in. He exposed their false beliefs. So do we have false beliefs about God and the way he works? Do do we have idols that we trust to calm the storms that's not God? Is it money, safety, security, possessions. And when things get difficult, where do you go to first? You see, the built-in nature of man is to have an idol or to, to worship something. We, we always have a faith in something. The question is not whether or not we have a faith, but who we have our faith in. And see, I know what my faith is when, in when things get difficult. And everybody's like, oh, he's a pastor. He's going to say Jesus. No. Uh, my faith automatically goes to me. I trust me. I'm the, I'm a figure it out. I'm a fix it kind of guy, which drives my wife crazy because when we get in a difficult situation, I'm like, Hey, we'll figure it out. I'll fix it. She's like the ambiguity alone is paralyzing in my mind right now. Cause you're not giving any direction to what we're doing, right? Like it's a problem. Um, but even when my sin is bringing about a storm in my life, my go-to, or if there's a storm in my life in general, not caused by sin, my go-to is for me to figure it out and fix it, to, to work as hard as I can, pull up my bootstraps and get out of the storm as quickly as possible. And you know what that does for me? It leaves me more stressed out, more anxious, and more fearful than I was before it all started, right? 
Because I know me. I don't make a very good God. I will fail at some point. It's going to happen. And even in the midst of like having this hardened exterior saying, yeah, I can do it, it'll all devolve eventually. And so what do you run to? What do you, what do you place your faith in? What are you worshiping here and now? What is your idol? And you see, the mariners in, in verse 6 even woke up Jonah, uh, and they, they were like, hey, why don't you go talk to your God too? They said, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish they said, maybe your God will start to play with us and pay attention to us in the midst of this. And don't we do that as followers of Jesus? Even as followers of Jesus, in the midst of a storm, our view of God is either shallow or small, right? Like, it may not be idolatry, but it is a type of false belief that we carry. I guess I better go ahead and pray since nothing else is working for me. Maybe God will come through for me, right? The storm is from God, We so often look at all of these other things or looking at our situations rather than looking to the Father and asking the question, man, what are you trying to show me? Asking the question, God, what what am I not seeing right now? How am I not pursuing you the way you would desire for my heart to pursue you? How, How would you like to refocus my attention in this? Where is my sin? There are far better questions to ask. We instead think he doesn't care or have time for us. Uh, when in fact he's, he's right there in the midst of our storm. And, and we'd rather God take us out of the storm than actually see the beauty in the midst of the storm. What I'm saying is we, we so often would choose a calm sea over a gracious and caring God. Storms in our life reveal what we really believe, what we really place our faith in. It reveals our idols. Another place these guys run to is to lighten their load. Like these guys were true minimalists, right? So they jump in and they start unloading stuff off the boat because they're like, the boat is going down. Let's try to get some buoyancy in this boat and start throwing things overboard, which is totally practical, right? Like it's a good response. If your ship is going down, uh, it keeps the boat afloat for longer. And for us, that makes sense too, right? Like when things get difficult, it it does help to simplify things. So, So the other night, Colleen and I, my wife, uh, watched a, a, a documentary on the minimalist. Um, it was actually really good. So these guys, uh, basically what happened is these two men, they found themselves very unhappy with life. And so what they decided to do is live on as least amount of possessions as possible. Brilliant, right? Like we've been losing clothes left and right, like getting rid of them, uh, cleaning out our house. It's, it's been a really good thing for us at home. But the, the weirdest thing that happened when I was watching the show is that these guys, the way they talked about being a minimalist was weird for me. You see, they, they, I, what I found out is that this is where they found their fulfillment. It was a religion for them. This was their saving grace. They saw the storm and figured, hey, let me unload my possessions so the storm doesn't take my ship down. Let me get rid of material possessions. And that's what we do, right? With our time, our talent, our resources. We think if we just cut back a little bit, things will work out. Stop, stop getting so busy. Stop spending so much money. Oh, how about we just give more or, or give up on being perfect? That's we, we start to minimize our realities, which are all reasonable and practical responses in the midst of hardship and difficult times. But typically we use that as a way of not trusting or depending on God in the midst of that storm, right? Instead, what, 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 if, what if God wants to do something more than simply changing our behavior in the midst of our life right now? What if, he, what if he wants to point our attention, draw our hearts to something much deeper than simply just changing our behavior? 
Listen, removing the attachments and material possessions in life, or, or at least the, 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 the removing our attachment to them is a good thing. It is a very good thing for us. It will make the ship go down a little bit slower. It actually might make this ride, this journey in life a little bit easier. But here's the problem. Though the sinking feeling has mellowed out, the ship is still going down. The ship is still going down. It says in verse 5 that while all of this is going on, our boy Jonah is fast asleep, which is beyond me, right? What kind of medication is he on? Like, you can't sleep while ships are going down. It just doesn't work out that way. Um, and my kids certainly would prove that. Uh, you, any, like, weird noise or whatnot, they might wake up. But he's sleeping. He's in a deep sleep while all the chaos of life is going on around him. And, and in verse 6, the mariners wake him up. And when you see him get woke up, what, what happens is that you start to see his heart a little bit, right? Because he doesn't seem to have any kind of empathy. He's kind of apathetic, actually, toward his sin and what it's causing everyone, uh, causing the chaos for everybody else around him. He thinks he's okay, right? Like, that's what would cause a man to go to sleep. He thinks he's escaped God. He, he's sleeping shows that he feels like he's escaped God's presence altogether, right? He thought that he got away from God's presence, so everything's going to be fine now. He thought, God allowed me to walk in my rebellion unscathed by it. You see, sleeping his troubles away, and it might have provided a temporary respite, but Jonah got woke up by the captain and started realizing some different things. You see, when we metaphorically sleep on, on, on God, when we sleep on the storm in our life and hope that it passes, I think, I think we, we have an issue there, right? Because not only is that sin causing chaos in our own life, but it's also having an effect on the people around us. You see, Jonah's rebellion toward God was wanting from him, was, was dragging others down with him deeper and deeper and deeper into his rebellion, you see, it's as if God's desire for him or Jonah's sin would just be ignored over time. Well, he would just give up on it. And the truth is, if you're intentionally sinning now, you won't just drift out of that sin later. You're not okay. It's not okay for us to sleep on our sin. We need to wake up and see the wake-up call of the storm that's in our life. And see how it's not only causing a, a, a destruction in our own life, but it's also causing destruction in the lives of those around us. It's a dangerous thing to sleep on our sin. And I know that God will meet us there, though, right? Like, even in the midst of that, he's going to go down in the depths and meet us there. He won't allow us to stay there. You see, when God gives you a wake-up call, he, he's meeting you where you are and showing you and exposing the fact that, hey, I want you. I'm pursuing you now. I'm going to wake you up and show you the destruction that your rebellion is causing your life and the people around you. In in verse 7, we see the the sailors are starting to get a little bit more desperate, right? Like they're fighting a losing battle at this point. The the ship's still going down. The storm is still waging war on their ship. And so what they decided to do is cast some lots. Now, I want to discuss casting lots just briefly because it's kind of weird, right? Uh, so casting lots is like the idea of like flipping a coin or using an eight ball, shooting some dice to figure out how you should proceed forward. Not recommended activity. Uh, however, you see that in the Bible, right? Like it actually occurs pretty often in the Bible. It's something that happens more and more times. Um, and it, it seems to not be an odd method for these guys, right? And so by God's sovereignty, he uses something very obscure in their ploy to figure things out to actually point to Jonah. And so it's beautiful that God would use their, their ridiculousness to point to where he wanted them to go. Uh, and so, so the lot fell to Jonah. 
but the sailors weren't convinced by that, right? Like they said, okay, we flipped the coin, it landed to Jonah, let's ask this dude some questions and really figure this out. And so they start to ask him in verse 8, they say, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us, what is your occupation and where do you come from, what is your country and what people are you? Basically, tell us who the heck you are so we can figure this thing out, right? Like that's what he's asking. And then Jonah says something really profound. He says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, which is real funny because he must not fear the Lord that much, right? Like, kind of weird. The God of heaven who made sea and the dry land. Now, don't miss this. This is super important. In spite of Jonah's determination to get to disobey God and to break fellowship with him, we see God sovereignly using Jonah anyway. He was on a ship because he did not want to tell pagans about God. And what do we find ourselves? Here on the ship, telling pagans about the Lord who created everything, right? Isn't that amazing? Like that he would use Jonah in his rebellion to continue to preach about himself, to lead others toward himself. So in Jonah's rebellion, he uses him to proclaim the truth about God. You see that God will use you in the midst of your rebellion. He will use you no matter what. It's not a question of whether or not he will use you. It's whether or not he'll do that with you or in spite of you. Now, Jonah stands up for once in our story, and then he confesses, right? He confesses, hey, I'm the guy. I follow God, and yet I rebelled against God. That's why it's sinking. Uh, And he's the one that chose to rebel against God and put everyone's life in danger. He just, he confesses right out, right? And I think sometimes when when, when we see our rebellion, when, when when we meet with God in the midst of a storm, we readily confess our rebellion, right? We readily confess, yes, I am the one who did the wrong, but notice something. Jonah doesn't repent. He doesn't turn from his rebellion and sin. He simply confesses and gives God some lip service. Feeling bad or admitting what you've done wrong doesn't save you. Remorse is not the same thing as repentance. You see, the storm is an opportunity for us to turn from our sin and turn toward God and walking with him, obeying in him, trusting in him, listening to Jesus. See, confession is simply the starting point to that. In other words, the goal isn't simply to acknowledge our sin, but to acknowledge how beautiful our Savior is in the midst of it. You see, don't just, tr- just turn away from the things that are comforting. Don't just turn away from your sin, but turn toward God. Now, as the sailors continue to ask Jonah questions, he tells them the way to get rid of this storm is to, to throw him overboard, at which point I would have thrown him overboard, right? Um, but these guys have more character than me and Jonah uh, and felt it better to not kill him. Because when you look at verse 13, he says, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, which blows my mind. Get rid of this dude. But they don't. So it sounds really honorable, right? This is a truly an honorable thing. They could have just thrown him off the ship and been done with it, right? They could have just listened to Jonah. Now, however honorable this may have seemed, they still were rebelling against the word of the Lord. You see, Jonah was a prophet, and Jonah explained what would be obedience to God, what God desired, and these men chose to just turn to their efforts, right? They turned to self-effort, which is the essence of our sin, right? Their knee-jerk, their first instinct, our first instinct is to turn to self and not turn to God. That's what we see in their sin. So whether that be idols, simplifying your life, or simply just checking out altogether, our sin and rebellion toward God looks like this, turning to self. And you may think that you're doing okay because eventually you might turn to God. But the, the thing is, what is your first instinct when things happen? We need God's grace to transform our hearts to turn to him first. Uh, So here's the good news (laughs) of all of this. Uh, Look again at verse 13. 
If we look at verse 13, the second half of it, underline these words. If you have a Bible, if you have it on your phone, highlight it. There's four simple words, but they could not. That's good news. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. No matter what your effort, no matter your rebellion, no matter your intellect, God can send a storm that you can't get out of. You can't stop it. And see, when we look at storms, we we see a cause and effect relationship between our sin and the chaos, which in some cases is very, very accurate. This typically leaves us, though, again, asking those questions of why me, God? Why now? Or haven't I had enough? You see, our, our sin does have a consequence, and sometimes that is a storm. Now, not every bad situation is a direct response from God because of our sin. But whether the storm is there because of your sin or some other reason, the answer is still the same. What is God doing? You see, that's what we have to see. We have to see the storm is God doing something in our life, displaying his mercy and grace by calling out to us. To show you, to show us, until we see our incompetence, we're not going to be competent to rule our own life. Until God reveals our incompetence to lead our own life, we will not be competent to go on. He meets you in your rebellion, but he will not let you stay there. Now, our story takes a turn here in verse 14, if you'll pick it up with me. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So the second reason that I want to point out for storms is God sends storms to save us. He sends storms to save us. And so when we come to the place of saying, okay, I can't do it anymore. I cannot get out of this storm. I can't function on my own. I can't work or figure this out. We have no other option but to turn to the Lord. Like these men, these sailors, they tried everything, right? They tried to defeat the storm. They tried to get away from the storm, and they still didn't have the victory. But this was all a part of God's plan in their life to bring them to himself. They they started out paying attention to their circumstances, the things going around them, and and they just grew in fear. I mean, if you look back at verse 5, at the first thing they feared, it was their circumstance. They were afraid that the ship was going to be torn apart, and they prayed to their idols. Knee-jerk response. And then in verse 10, they feared again. It says they feared the presence of Jonah's God, not their own God, but Jonah's God. And so what was their response to that? Well, they were going to try harder and do the moral thing by not sacrificing Jonah. But then finally here at the end in verse 16, it says that they feared the Lord. You see what I'm saying? They went from praying to fake gods to praying to the one true God. If you look at the Hebrew word in verse 6 versus the one used in verses 14 through 16, they're very different words. You see, when they tell, tell Jonah to call out to their God, they use the Hebrew word Elohim. It's basically a generic term for God. It's, it's kind of like maybe some God, not a personal God at all, but just maybe a different kind of God, not very specific as to what God he's talking about. But now they're calling out to the Lord, and the word there is Yahweh. That's the personal name of God. That's the, God, the name that God gave to Israel, the holy name of God. The God they thought at one point was distant is now brought near to them. They went from fleeing from the presence of Jonah's God to leaning into the presence of, of, of Jonah's God and making him their God and experiencing peace and, and, and rest in his presence instead. You see, God's primary reason for sending the storm was because of Jonah's sin in running away. But instead, he used the storm to save these men from their unbelief. 
which caused them to call out to God and not only call out to him, but respond in a reverent obedience to God. You see, they, they, they trusted the sacrifice of Jonah over the ship, like casting the dude overboard and then cast themselves on God in the midst of it. And, and what did God do in response to it? The moment the dude hit the water, the sea ceased. It no longer was in a storm. The storm caused the men to repent and trust in God and obey him. This is the essence of true obedience, right? If you look at these men, this is the essence of obedience. It comes by faith. It comes by fear, awe of the living God. They were in awe of God. That's what we see on display here. They gave up trying to be their own saviors to turning to the one true savior. That's our same opportunity. Every single time we rebel against God and we experience a storm, we can turn to that God. Except here's the difference. We don't have to wait till our life is falling apart around us. We don't have to wait until this is having a massive impact on everyone around us. We can turn to God right away. We don't have to wait until the storm wrecks the ship. We can trust the sacrifice of Jesus and not the sacrifice of Jonah. He's the one that took our sin. He's the one that sacrificed for all. We don't have to wait to God to call out to us. We can call out to him. We don't have to wait for a prophet to tell us what God says. We can hear from him. We have direct access to God. The storm is just a sign of God saying, hey, I'm here. I'm calling out to you. I want you to be with me. You see, Jonah here was a lot like Jesus, but he wasn't him. Instead of running from God, Jesus went straight to Jerusalem to be sacrificed. Uh, Jonah's body appeased the waves, but Jesus' body was sacrificed to appease God's wrath. Jonah was a rebellious prophet, but Jesus is the perfect Lord who created the heavens and the earth and the dry land and the sea. Jesus was called by the Father to go to his enemies and not bring them a me- simply a message of repentance, but was called to give his own life away for them. Jesus pities his enemies that while he was on the cross, he says to the Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In verse 17, Jonah was given mercy and grace by God sending a fish to keep this man alive. But Jesus was not given mercy and grace, but instead was given our sin and God's wrath upon him on our behalf. So how can we not worship him? How can we not praise a God like this? How can we not be in a fearful awe of him? He is the Lord, the one who controls the waves, the sea, and shows mercy and grace. He's the one that pursues us in our rebellion to save us from our rebellion. If you're like the sailors and you're in a storm and you're looking all in the wrong places to calm the storm of your sin and rebellion in your life, can I just compel you to stop? Stop pursuing the self-help. Stop working harder to go to shore. Stop gambling your life away and place your faith in Jesus. Trust that he's the greater Jonah. He's the one that sacrifices life on the cross on your behalf. He's the one that calmed the storm of God's wrath on your sin. Would you place your faith in him? And all of us in the room have sin in our life. For some of us, it's very overt. And for some of us, it's kind of the sneaky stuff. And that sin is cause, it may be causing a storm in our life, but we're just sleeping on it. Or we're just medicating the reality that we're in the midst of a storm. Can I also call you, compel you to stop? You may not be feeling the effects or the waves, but, but the boat is still going down. It is still sinking if you're not repenting, turning away from the sin and trusting in Jesus for not only your salvation, but for today. Don't simply stop looking at your sin. Don't simply stop going to the satisfaction of the comforts and joys, but go to the Savior. Look to his sacrifice. Turn the boat around and go toward him. 
You see, when God sends or allows a storm, it's out of his mercy and his grace for us. He meets us where we are, but he's not willing to let us stay there. He's willing to go through great lengths to draw our attention, draw our affections toward him, even if it means a storm in your life. That's how deep his love is for us. We have a choice every single day. Will we continue on in our rebellion, only finding ourselves going deeper in the boat, deeper in the boat, deeper in the sea, deeper in the sea, or will we turn to God who in an instant, without any hesitation, offers up love, grace, and mercy available to us? Amen? Let's pray.